If you haven't kept your hand in there, we should be Acts 26 and Acts 27. I get the daunting task of running through uh, this, whole, uh, this whole process. And so we took a big chunk during our reading time. Uh, so then that way we don't have to reread that. But we're going to be going through reading a lot of chapter 27. And we're going to focus a lot just in these chapters. So don't worry about running back and forth. Stay focused on 26 and 27, and we will unpack too many truths <laughs> there, but we, we will enjoy it uh, together, I promise. Well, let's pray and uh, ask God to bless his word and what we've heard and what we will heard uh, and to focus on that together. Lord, we thank you so much. You take care of us in so many ways. It's been a blessing to watch how you've taken care of many in our church body that have either been sick or have had to go to the hospital, even family members within our church, Lord, the way you've blessed and take care of in amazing ways. Lord, we continue to pray for those that are not doing well, and and Lord, that you would continue to show yourself, and may you be glorified and lifted high. And Lord, may we see the gospel just coming forth, the good news of what you've done for us, what you continue to do for us through the sanctification process of helping us to become more like you. May we not take for granted your your good news that you took our sin to the cross, that you died so that you could be the perfect sacrifice to pay for our sins and that you rose again in, in conquering death and sin and restoring fellowship with you. Lord, what a, what a joy. May we never get tired of hearing you proclaimed as our Savior. Thank you, Lord, for loving us, for giving us the ultimate gift, providing a way to return back into fellowship with you. Lord, we thank you for all that we are about to unpack Lord, may your spirit speak truth to us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning, I want us to really see three big concepts, and it's amazing that uh, they all flow out of each other. The first concept really brings us into the second concept, which brings us into the third concept, which is the overarching principle for everything. Which is, is amazing as we look at Acts 26. It should be in shock as we look at the fact that what would you do if you had to defend yourself before the governing authorities in which we live? And I'm not talking about the police station or the local government. I'm talking about what would you do if you were on uh, at Capitol Hill, before, called before all of Congress, having to give a defense for yourself because you're creating an uprising, right? That's what they're blaming. They're blaming Paul for creating an uprising and saying they're stirring up all of these things and they're stirring up all of this against the government. Now, what's amazing is, is in the political climate in which we live today, this is becoming more and more plausible. Uh, Seeing that many, many Christians are being persecuted for the gospel, it is becoming our reality today. And as we look in shock of what Paul is going through, 
we should also be looking today, this is becoming more and more common. But, you know, ask this question of yourself. What would you do in the face of such adversity? What do you do right now in the face of adversity? When things aren't the way that you feel that they should be. When you're persecuted, ridiculed, when, when people look down on you, or when you're just having trouble, period. What do you do? What do you think of? How do you respond? What is the controlling factor for your emotions? All of this, I ask, is because you, you can only imagine what Paul is going through during this time. He's been in prison for over two years. And it's not like prison today. I visited the prisons in, in Caesarea Philippi, and basically it's a tantamount to just a cave in the, side, in the hillside. It's just cut out a rock, you know, and right next to the palace. And he is not getting toiletries, and he's not getting, you know, a hot, you know, hot meals and a cot. You know, it's not like cable TV running into his, you know, he doesn't get yard duty every day. He doesn't get all of these pleasures that people do today. And now he's standing before the government. What's amazing to you is, is that the first thing that we see listed in this text in chapter 26 is that the gospel is effective no matter the situation. The gospel is effective. You know what's amazing is, is exactly what Rob pointed out, is that in the midst of having to give a defense, he goes straight to the gospel. He doesn't go to, this is my life and this is who I am. I've done everything right. I have done nothing wrong. He focuses right in on the gospel. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he told the Corinthian church, Paul says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says, that's my message. That was Paul's message. No matter what he was going through, it was about Christ. Goes back to Philippians chapter 3. The one thing he pursues is the message of Christ. Everything else in his life, he counts as loss. And he's giving us the example. The illustration is exactly what he's living. He's not, his life isn't on the line, but the gospel message is. His life isn't the point, but the gospel message is. In fact, how could Paul live in such a way to share the gospel in the midst of his life being on the line. Because if he goes before Caesar, and he's going to get his head chopped off, which is what happens. He knows it's coming. He knows he's going to die. But yet, the most important thing is the message. If you go back in Acts chapter 23, this is the point. In verse 11, he says, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so must you must testify also in Rome. Paul knew that the most important thing was his testimony 
of the gospel. I want you to let that sink in. The most important thing was his testimony of the gospel. He stood as a prisoner in chains before Festus and Agrippa and and a couple other officials, and yet he was not seeking freedom or even to prove his innocence, but his intent was to share Christ. And look at, look at verse 20 through 25. Listen to, to these words again. He says, he says in verse 19, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I have not, uh, I have not, diso- I have not disobeyed or been disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that, being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Do you see what he's, he's sharing the gospel? He's saying that the gospel is proclaimed in the very beginning, in the law of Moses, and it was proclaimed by the prophets in the Old Testament. That this gospel that was prophesied about was come to pass in Christ. And that Christ died for our sins. And that he said that all the time that he was calling people to repentance. Repent and believe in Christ. And he died and he rose again in the first resurrection. Do you see what Paul's focus in? Verse 6, he's preaching. He says in verse 6 that Christ is the hope of Israel. He says, because my hope is in the promise made by God to our fathers. He's talking about Christ. His hope is in Christ. In verse 9, he says, in verse 12, of chapter 26, he's talking about the crucified Savior. In verse 13, he's saying that the crucified Savior is the light that comes from heaven. That reveals our sin. Verses 13 through 15, he's, 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 Christ is the exalted Lord. He is not just a man, he's, he's the Lord. Verse 15, he, he says that he's not only the Lord, but he's the head of the church. He says, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? Remember, Paul was persecuting the church, but Christ says, you're not persecuting the church, you're persecuting the head of the church. And in verses 26 through 23, he sees, we, he talks about the sovereign Lord, that it was God's purpose all along for him to receive the gospel and to preach it to both the Jews and to the Gentile. He told him of forgiveness, eternal life, repentance, redemption, sanctification, resurrection, and faith that all comes by grace from God as a free gift. And at the end of all of that, in verse 25, or verse 24 and 25, Festus goes, man, Paul, you are crazy. Paul goes, no, I'm not. I'm not crazy. This is the gospel. I want you to see, I mean, can you imagine when you're dealing with somebody on the street, are you focusing on the gospel? 
Is the gospel the first thing that comes to your mind? When you're dealing with the government, is the, the first thing in your mind the gospel? When you're dealing with your taxes, is the first thing in your mind the gospel? When you're dealing with paying, you know, when you're paying your license fees for your car, is the first thing in your mind the gospel? When you're being persecuted for Christ's sake, is it the gospel? When you're struggling at work, is the first thing in your mind the gospel? Is it the testimony of who Christ is and what Christ has done for you? Or are you dealing with things in your marriage, in your family, at school, whatever it is, are you focusing on what, how you feel you should be? Are you, man, this shouldn't be this hard. I should have this. I should have that. I I shouldn't be persecuted. Life should be easier. Or are you focusing on what Christ has done for you by dying on the cross? Are you focusing the fact that he rose again, that he conquered death? Do you have an eternal mindset? That eternal mindset is what is driving Paul. He is not focusing on his life ending. He's focusing on the gospel that needs to proclaim to everyone in his path. His hope is in the Lord. His focus is in the resurrection that the gospel, that Jesus is coming back. That when he dies, it's not his his life that he lived that matters, but it's the gospel message that he's testifying to that makes all the difference in the world. How are you in tense situations? In the situation of your life, is the gospel your ally? Is the gospel your defense? Is the gospel your offense? Paul was pretty offensive. Not just offensive as on the offense, right? He was taking it to them. But it was also the offense that drove him to his death. They took it as offensive. How dare you preach to me that I need to submit to another Lord? They didn't see God for who God really was. But Paul was made sure that they knew who Jesus was and what he had done. And in the situation of your life, do you recognize that the gospel is the most effective in any situation, no matter what you're going through, that the gospel matters? There's a good book about that, The Gospel Matters, right? And it's a play on words. It's knowing the gospel in... Applying the gospel. The gospel matters. It's also, you know, there's so many other things. We take the gospel for granted. That flows right into chapter 27. Point number two is is that the gospel makes leadership effective. Did you know that God gave us the gospel to change our lives to be leaders? But not the leaders like you think but to be effective in every situation of our life, to have a different form of leadership that the world does not understand, a servant-type leadership. 
Look at verses 1 through 8 of, of chapter 27. Paul is getting ready. He said, hey, I need, I'm appealing to Caesar. They said, because you appealed to Caesar, even though we find no fault in you. By the way, did you notice that? After they shared the gospel, they said, hey, we find no fault in this man. But because you appealed to Caesar, you must go to Caesar. Paul is going to go to Rome no matter. He's going to do, take whatever route that he can take to get there. And God says, you're going to get there, and you're going to testify about me before everyone. You see, the gospel matters no matter who you're talking to. The gospel also makes leadership effective. You can be the, a better leader as a parent. You can be a better leader in your marriage. You can be a better leader at work. You can be a better leader at school. You can be a better leader... No matter where you are at in your life, the gospel affects your leadership ability. No gospel, weak leadership. More gospel, the stronger your leadership. In verse verse 8, you notice that they start this journey, and it wasn't at the best of times. And in fact, in verse 8, it says, uh, coasting along, it was difficult. We came to a place called Fair Havens. Not down near us, but in Israel. And they came to this place, but already from the very beginning. So Paul was met with difficulty. He's being persecuted for wrong reasons because the Jews just didn't like him. First of all, one of the best among them converted to Christ, right? And now who he persecuted, he's proclaiming as Lord and Savior. And they begin this journey, verse 8, and they start with difficulty. Do you notice most journeys start with a a little bit of difficulty? It's called packing, right? (laughs) What do you do? How do you pack? You know, I just, I leave packing for the last half an hour before I leave. (laughs) I've always done that. I don't know why. I did it when I went to Israel. So uh, Kaylee did the same thing. It's like the night before, her and I didn't sleep. We just packed. (laughs) So we did it together, and then I crashed the next day. But verses 9 through 13, they had this crucial decision. Look at verse 9. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the the fast was already over. At this time, the weather was getting worse and it was getting dangerous. It was starting to get stormy. It was not the right time. Paul knew it. And look what Paul says, and he advises them in verse 10, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but even our lives. Look, if we go now, it's going to end bad. But what happened? Do you think that they listened to Paul? Who was Paul, by the way? He was a prisoner. He was chained to a centurion. By the way, he wasn't chained to just anybody. This was... The men among men. This was the leader among leaders. This guy was trained to not move when he was fighting. Nobody could move him. He moved everybody. That's who this guy was. He had great authority. Next to the captain, he had sole authority like Caesar was on the ship. That's who Paul was chained to. And of course, look at verse 10, or verse 11. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot than to the owner of the ship. It's like me flying with Ellen Benjamin, right? If I was flying with Ellen, Ella and Benjamin and I said, hey, you should do this, this would 
be better, you would laugh at me because I don't have a pilot's license. I don't even have a mechanic's license. I don't know how the plane's put together. They do. You shouldn't listen to me. You should listen to Jerry or you should listen to them, right? This is the situation. They're on this ship and Paul says, don't do it. And the pilot says, we can do it. It's no big deal. So who do you listen to? You don't listen to Paul, right? They keep going. They listen to the experts. Sometimes we feel like that. Like nobody listens to us because they don't look at us with any credibility. They're just a Christian. Look at verse 14 through 20. It says all of a sudden a a storm comes up soon, a a a temptuous wind, just like the hurricanes are blowing off of off of the, off the coast, in the east coast right now. And then it says, they struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way and was driven along. They put their sails down, they stopped fighting it, and the storm drove them. They were driven by the storm. How many of you feel like that? That this world in which you live in is just driving you crazy? <laughs> I like my, my kids. They ask me this. They go, hey, Dad, uh, let's go. Uh, I want to go crazy because they always ask me, where are we going? Somewhere crazy or we're going crazy. I always say going crazy. So now my little kids go around, we're going crazy. And I'm like, do you want to go somewhere? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> but that's what they felt like. They're driven along. We're going crazy. They're scared to death. They're feeling all hope is lost. In fact, in verse 18, if you look there, they're starting to throw the tackle overboard. The very thing, the tools that they need to keep the ship going in the right direction, they're throwing it overboard. They're doing everything they can to lighten the ship, to get it above the water, because they're going to die. The thing that would bring them money, their cargo, they're throwing it overboard. All of a sudden they realize they're probably going to die. Look at verse 20. It says, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. That's a pretty big storm, don't you think? No stars, no sun. No small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was lost and abandoned. They lost all hope. Verse 21 through 26, we see that all of a sudden Paul's Paul comes alive. Paul becomes a somebody on the ship. In verse 21, we see that since they had no food for a long time, Paul is beginning to say, hey, you know, take, take heed. There's going to be injury. There's all this stuff's coming on. But it says in verse 20, that very night, verse after all hope is lost, an angel of God to whom I belong, he's telling the people on the ship, an angel came from God. He has come before me and he said this, verse 24, do not be afraid. And they're like, what are you talking about, Paul? Do you see what's going on outside? And he says, no, this is real. God has granted you all those who sell with you. So take, God, God's granting them their life. He's saying, Paul, tell them that their lives will be saved. That all of you It's been granted that all those that stay with you has been granted their life. So, verse 25, so take heart, men, Paul says, for I have faith in 
God. The gospel makes leadership effective. Paul says, listen guys, take heart, take encouragement. God is with me and therefore God is with you. Faith is, don't have faith in what you see, but have faith in God. Verses 27 through 29, they're, they're, they're nearing land. Verses 30 through 32, the sailors stop. <laughs> uh, they're stopped from abandoning his ship. He's like, Paul saying, look, guys, if you <laughs> told the centurion, if they leave, we die. Some people began to sneak off the ship. They're beginning to lower the, the lifeboats. And, and you know what the soldiers did? They went and cut all the ropes, knocked them all, and said, hey, guys, stay with us. All of a sudden, the tides have changed. Those who would not listen to Paul are now listening to Paul. Paul encourages them, and everybody is saved. All the prisoners and the passengers are spared from death. Verses 33 all the way through 34. Look at what happened. Look at the style of leadership from Paul. If you were to reread all of this, you'd realize this thing. Paul was not striving to be a leader. Did you notice that? Paul's goal was never to be a leader. Paul's goal was to share the gospel. God's, Paul's, goal was to, Paul's goal was all about his testimony about Christ. Paul's goal was to get to Rome to share the gospel. What is your goal? in the body of Christ. I, notice this. Paul was never focusing on being in charge, but God put him in charge. It was, God's, it was God's pleasure to put him in charge for the sake of the gospel. That's what the gospel does. It's not about striving. See, that's our culture and our world says being a leader is the most important thing. Strive to be over people. But God says, no, your goal is to see the needs of others and share the gospel. The other part of leadership that I want you to see what the gospel does is it doesn't, it, you don't focus on striving to be a leader. But the second thing is Paul's leadership was not viewed as a religious or moral leadership. They didn't say, well, look, he's a godly man. Let's follow him. That was not the type of leadership that Paul had. In fact, it was that they were confident in Paul's encouragement, in Paul's testimony, in Paul's lead. Paul never stopped sharing with the people on board. He never stopped focusing on what their need was. When they were afraid, he comforted them. When they had needs, he met them. He, he shared with them. Paul was driven by the gospel. The other type of leadership is Paul did not have a formal position as a leader. Did you notice that? There was not a formal leadership. They didn't actually say, Paul, you are now our leader. That was not it. He had a functional leadership. He saw a need. He met the need. He saw the need for encouragement. He encouraged. He didn't say, well, I'm not the leader. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. The gospel changes Leadership. 
to not focus on a position, but focus, focuses on needs. That's the type of leadership that the gospel changes and gives. By the way, Paul's leadership emerged in the midst of a majority rule. Did you notice that? Paul's leadership outshined in the midst of a majority rule focus. He was outnumbered. He was outruled. In the very beginning of the voyage, they outruled Paul. The centurion, the soldiers, and the pilot all said, hey, we believe we can do it. We're going to do it. I want you to notice that. Leadership wasn't about majority rule. It was about following the Lord. It was about meeting the needs of other people. How much would our church change if leadership was not about majority rule and focusing on that, but about meeting each other's needs and loving each other with the gospel? That would change dramatic. Do you know that God views all of us as leaders, as ministers of the gospel? It, 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 it hurts my heart when I see in church, and I see in churches, I see all around where Christians are trying to take control of the political climate within church. You say, there's no political climate in church. Bogus, there is too. <laughs> Don't tell me there isn't. Every church I've been in, even ours, I, there's always this political climate. And it's, it's always distressing when more people are more concerned about being in control of the political climate than allowing the gospel to be in charge. This amazing message changes everything. It, it changed the way Paul def, made defense. It changed the way Paul got to Rome. It changed it changed the lives of everybody on that ship. The gospel influence drove Paul to his success in a time of difficulty. Let's remember the words of, of Christ. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, or Mark chapter 9, verse 35, it says, And he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Being a leader is not about being first. It's about being the servant. Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45, And Jesus called them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentile lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But you shall not be so among you, but whoever should be great among you must be your servant. You see the gospel? If you don't see the gospel, then look at Christ. He says in Matthew 20, 28, Even the Son of Man came not to serve, but to be, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as ransom for many. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8, Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves, each let each of you look not out for your own interest, but the interest of others. Have this mind among yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. It's the gospel. 
That leads us to our last point, and that is this. The gospel illustrates, I says the gospel is, but put illustrate. In my notes, I put is, meant, was a, it was a small, uh, for, it meant illustration, but I didn't put it in the notes correctly. The gospel illustrates God's absolute sovereignty and man's complete responsibility. The gospel, did you see what happened in the storm, by the way? God said, do this and you'll be saved. What an amazing illustration of the gospel. It's God's sovereign plan. It's God is in control. We have no authority over salvation. God has complete authority and control of salvation. He had complete control, utter control of the storm, the circumstances, the boat, and the men inside. But he says, only do this. Don't abandon ship. Ride it out to the very end, he says. If you leave the ship, you will all die. Right? And some tried. In the end, God's purpose will always be accomplished. In, the, in, the, in these events, we clearly illustrate God was sovereign. He said, you have to do this. But also, after the fact, after God's plan was revealed, they had a responsibility to obey it. That's what I call a perfect marriage. God is sovereign, but after we come in contact with God's sovereign plan of salvation, for by grace you've been saved through faith, we have to respond out of obedience. Say, Pastor, I don't know. I don't understand how that works. Because I'm talking about predestination and election. Right? And that's the truth. God is sovereign. It's his plan. It's he chose us. He saved us. There's no ands, ifs, or buts about it. We were dead in our sins. Ephesians chapter 2. Just look at Ephesians 1 through chapter 2. We have no say in our salvation. But we have to respond to it out of obedience. That's submission. One deals with our pride. We can't pridefully say, I had a choice in the matter. We can't. God takes away and strips away our pride, which is sin. And we have to respond to a holy God. That's what the gospel is. And we do out of obedience, and that's our responsibility. It's a perfect marriage. You say, well, pastor, how does that work? All I know is what the gospel says. He saved us. I have a responsibility to respond. My response doesn't save me. It shows that I am saved. You say, well, how does that all work? I don't know. That's just what God says. It's not my job to engineer it. It's God's purpose and God's plan to deal with our pride, to deal with our sin through Christ. Our text shows us God's sovereignty in all the events leading up to this. Man, can you imagine what Paul is going through? He probably thought I had the worst of it when I was beaten up for the gospel on the missionary journey. But the worst was yet to come in his life. It was the purpose of God to save every person on the ship. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand forever. That's God's sovereignty. Number two is that they had to obey it. They had to follow through. 
Joshua chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, right? Have I, you know, do everything that I've commanded you, and you will have success. You know, the third thing that I want you to see in chapter 27 is this, is that God's graciously overrules all obstacles to accomplish his purpose. Think about that. God overruled. Those men tried to escape the boat. What happened? The soldiers stepped in. The storm should have killed everybody, but it didn't. God said that they would be saved, and they were. But look at everything that was thrown their way. Psalm 135.6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deep. And they lived it. Psalm 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots. By the way, chariots were the tanks of the day. They were like the strongest part of any army. If you had chariots, you could run over everybody. It says in Psalm 20, it says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Proverbs 21, 31, The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Psalm 30, verses 17 and following, it says, The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might... Even though by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their souls from death and keep them alive in famine. Your soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Back in our text in Acts chapter 27, verse 25, he said, Men, take heart, for I have faith in my leadership. I have faith in my circumstances. I have faith in God. God is sovereign. And I want to add this. What we see here in our text is that we have a responsibility to respond to the sovereign Lord. If you don't, you're going to struggle. You're going to struggle in fear. You're going to struggle in doubt. You're going to struggle in persecution. Even if you are being persecuted, even if you are in the midst of a storm, even if you are struggling... God, in his sovereign plan, can use the gospel to save many. We live in a culture that's going sideways fast. You know what the answer is? Is the gospel. We live in a church where we're going to be dealing with problems every single year. You know what the answer is? The gospel. Whatever you're going through in your life, the answer starts at the very core and foundation of your life, and that is the gospel. If you are not responding to the gospel, then you're struggling in God's plan. The answer is the gospel. Let the gospel be your driving force in the midst 
of the driving storms that God has placed us in. It's not by chance that you're dealing with whatever you're dealing with. It's God's sovereign plan. But we have to respond to God in obedience for us to see the outcome of that plan. Will you respond to God? Will you respond to him and the gospel? Let's pray. Lord, it's amazing how you took the gospel from a bunch of fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. And Lord, you took it to the furthest places, to the, to the heights of the throne in Rome through many storms, through many turmoils, through many struggles, you took the gospel from something so insignificant and you took it to the highest heights. And you used so many insignificant people to do that. Lord, may you use us because, Lord, we value the gospel. May that be the driving force in our church, is that we value the fact that you died for us. But Lord, we are sinners. We, we have nothing to offer you. We cannot offer you anything that's of value. Because, Lord, we are not holy as you are holy. And because of that, we deserve your wrath to be poured on us. We, Lord, we deserve to die for eternity in hell. We deserve that. That's where we'll go if we don't respond to you. But Lord, in your infinite mercy, you gave us your son who lived a perfect life. You, Lord, lived to die, to pay for our sins. And you rose again and are interceding on our behalf, begging and pleading with us to respond to Christ. Lord, I pray that if there's someone here that hasn't responded to you and say, Lord, I need you. I need your payment for my sin and that they would respond to you and say, Lord, I need you. And that they would take their heart and kneel before you and respond to their Savior who has saved them from their sins to give us a life that lasts for eternity with you. Lord, restore in them a right fellowship. Lord, thank you for that relationship that we have as believers with you. And Lord, I pray that we would recognize your sovereign plan over our circumstances, that we would look to the gospel and realize we don't deserve anything. We deserve death. But you gave us everything in Christ. You are everything. The gospel is the everything of our life. Lord, may that be the rallying cry together with you. May we respond to that daily and see that everything in our life is part of your plan, whether we like it or not. May we submit to you as the authority of our life. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us through your word. In Jesus' name.